welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Asia Pina, who is an early defense social worker for the Family Defense Practice at Bronx Defenders in the Bronx, New York. Asia explains how she works with a team of social workers, parent advocates, and attorneys to best defend parents who are being charged with abuse and neglect of children. We discuss the disproportionate numbers of black and brown children, as well as children in poverty, who are removed from their parents, and how racism and systemic oppression set the framework of many child welfare policies and practices. Asia describes that the beautiful, diverse families in the Bronx who love their children feel like they are under constant surveillance by the state in the form of the New York Police Department and Administration for Children's Services. She also talks about how she got into this work, practicing self-care, and shares a message for students interested in working in the child welfare system. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Asia, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to hear about the work you're doing at Bronx Defenders. So just to get things started off, could you just jump in and let the listeners know what you do? Thank you for having me. I am a social worker, as you said, at the Bronx Defenders. The Bronx Defenders is a public defense office located in the South Bronx in New York City. So we represent families in what we call a holistic model. There's the interdisciplinary team of folks that we work with, which means that they are parent advocates, social workers, they are community organizers, there are other staff, including attorneys from different disciplines, uh, disciplines such as criminal attorneys, family attorneys, civil attorneys, housing attorneys, immigration attorneys. So we all collaborate, all work together in a client-centered focus to represent individuals and families that need legal representation in the Bronx. That sounds amazing. And, you know, I've followed the work a little bit. And so that I'm, I've been so excited to talk to you about what, you know, the role of like a social worker is within that system. Absolutely. So at Bronx Defenders, we have a practice called the Family Defense Practice. And we have social workers, parent advocates, and attorneys that all focus in family law and how to best advocate and defend parents that are being charged with abuse and neglect of children. So out of the family defense practice birth, what we now call the early defense practice. And we found that this, this practice was very important because by the time that families are already in family court, meaning that there's already a, a case that has been filed, there has been a 60-day investigation that was completed by a child protective worker, by the child protective agencies. Here we call them the ACS workers, the um, Administration for Children's Services. So by the time that families are in front of a judge, there has already been attorneys assigned. So the, the parent gets an attorney, ACS, Child Protective Services, they have an attorney, and also the children have an attorney. And by the time they're there, the families, we believe, right, could have been helped differently. We could have strategized differently to prevent any further surveillance of the government on a family. So we decided to start the early defense practice. There's only two of us. It's myself and another colleague. We, we like to reference our story like the David and Goliath story because we're like against 
or I must I must say advocating um, for all families, right, that come to our office who have this ACS supervision and this ACS surveillance on them. Um, so we strategize with the clients, we strategize with ACS to prevent going into the family court to prevent the judges from surveilling and and from supervising family. Uh, We work closely with them to see how best we can help support families and keep families healthy, keep families safe, keep kids together with their parents. Because here in the Bronx, there's a really high percentage of removals that happen in family court. Removals also happen in the communities. Removals of children also happen at ACS offices. I particularly have witnessed how ACS workers will take children from their parents' arms and take them into this secret room in the family court. And then the kids are then taken into this secret van that transport them over to the children's center, which is a huge home. Well, not, I don't want to say a home. It's a huge building that a lot, all of the kids that are removed from their parents, that's where they're housed. That's where they lived until... There's a foster care agency or uh, another relative takes the kids. Wow. So I'm so glad we're talking about this because I've wanted to talk about the connection within the child welfare you know, system of the disproportionate number of families in poverty that end up in the system and the disproportionate number of black and brown children who are removed from their families. And you're at the front lines of this work. So mm-hmm. I was hoping you can speak to that and, and how you, you know, how the work you're doing is intervening with that or just that issue in general. Well, yes, it, it, this is a perfect example. And you, in one of your questions, you mentioned like, what, is the, what are some challenges in terms of real social change? And, and I just want to include that we are conditioned society in itself to believe that families of color are violent to believe that families of color are are drug addicts, believe that families of color are dangerous and shouldn't have their children and we should be in jail. That is far from the truth. Here in the Bronx, we have beautiful families, diverse colors who love their children, want to strive with their kids. However, we're being surveillance, highly surveillance by NYPD, highly surveillance by ACS workers. I remember driving home from work and I, I just made a right turn. I locked eyes with another police officer that was driving on the opposite side of me. And I'm a light-skinned Latina with curly hair. So I'm just driving home. And I saw that he started to follow me. I didn't know why I was being followed, but he did start to follow me. And that really scared me. I can only imagine, right? Like what what a, a black and brown man would feel like, or or even my dad, who's really dark man, right? How would he feel if there's police officers that are following him and we didn't do anything. Um, so we have NYPD, that's for the, the New York Police Department, right? There are surveillance families that are surveillance the community. There's an NYPD officer down here in the South Bronx in every corner. They're in uniform and they're also undercover. Uh, we don't know, right? I don't know if they're around to for our safety or if they're around to cause any trouble, because we know that there has been trouble between the police and the community. That is not a secret. And I've also been um, walking down the street numerous of times where I'm walking to a meeting. I was with an intern of mine, and I'm glad that she was able to experience this. One of the, one of the young ladies that was just hanging out in front of her building asked me if I was an ACS worker. And it, it pains me. It was very hurtful for me to 
be thought of as an ACS worker solely because I'm walking down the street, right? Like I just had a regular bag. I didn't have anything to suggest that I was an ACS worker or anything to suggest that I work with the government or whatever. I just had regular clothes on and I was walking to a meeting. And she thought that I was going to be in somebody's house to remove somebody's children. And that was far from the truth. But that is to say that this community is, is, is pain. Right? Like we're in pain. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of tension. Not only is, is the NYPD surveillance this community really strongly, but so is ACS. And NYPD takes people to jail and ACS at times removes kids. So they're permanently destroying families, right? That live in these communities in, in two very, in two very strong ways, right? Jail and separation of families. Right. And, and it's, all under the guise of safety. And so then it makes it very difficult to argue against that because you're arguing supposedly against safety, but we know that that's not what's really going on here. So maybe you could like, obviously without the detail, you know, too many details or anything, but kind of give us an example of a case where maybe there would have been a removal, but you're, you were able to intervene and and work with the family and work that out. Because I think that type of thing is going to be important for for podcast listeners to hear. Yeah, there's been numerous cases where that has happened. One of the many. There's this one family that I worked with. Uh, she called us to let us know there was an incident between her and her husband, who's the father of her children. Police were called, ACS was called, and ACS called in a meeting. Uh, these meetings that they have, the first meeting is called like the Initial Child Safety Conference, um, short for an ICSC, a CSC is what we call them. And so we were called into this meeting and the ACS workers were alleging that she has placed her children in, in harm's way because she did not call the police as soon as her partner assaulted her. And therefore, they were going to remove her children. So we were there to say, that is not what's going to happen, right? You're not going to remove these children from this mom because she was trying to actually defend herself. She was actually trying to protect her children from what was happening. She cannot literally pick up a phone and call the police when she's getting brutally assaulted, right? Like who has, who can pick up the phone and say, hey, police come, I'm just getting hit right now. Nobody, right? And so it was crazy for me to even be in the same room with workers who, who know what happens, right? Who, we told them exactly what happened, and they still decided to want to remove the children. And had not been for my presence, right, for the early defense work, for what we did in the early stages of this case, these kids would have been removed. If that parent did not have an advocate with her in this meeting, those children would have been removed solely because she was trying to protect them from somebody that was assaulting her. It's just so intense. You know, it's just really, really intense because the outcome for those kids, if they're removed and what that means for their life and all the negative, you know, statistics that are associated with ending up in the child welfare system. Right. That would have happened if you're not there. Absolutely. And when kids are removed, and placed in a different foster home, not only are they removed from their parent, like they, they don't know when they're going to see their parent again, and they're placed in a completely different home. They're then 
placed in a different school. They have a new bed. They have a new teacher. They have new friends. They have a new school building that they have to go to. They have new clothes. If they even have new clothes, right? Like that's traumatizing for children. And it stays. Kids don't forget those things, right? Like it stays with them for a long time. So what was the outcome in terms of she stayed, you know, the kids stayed with her. What kind of happened within that family? Right. So so after the meeting, like ACS will give their recommendation, we're going to remove the children. And so we say, no, we are in disagreement. We have to go to court. There's a, a petition that's filed by the ACS workers. In court, the judge decided that the kids were not going to be removed. And so thankfully, that was the solution to that case. The kids stayed with their parent and the parent was referred to a domestic violence counseling and some services that will help her and also help the children as well because the kids were present and were part of this incident. And so the entire family then began therapeutic services instead of being removed over over this instance. Right. Therapeutic services rather than a traumatizing, an additionally traumatizing experience. Exactly. And, and this is like your daily, this is your daily work. Every day. So how many cases like this do you intervene with, you know, each week? Each week we intervene in at least, at least 50 of these cases or even a hundred, right? Because where some of us are preventing these cases from being filed and others are already in court with cases that have already been filed. So we have some social workers and parent advocates that are working out in the field and trying to prevent this. And then we have some that are in court with the families trying to prevent any more trauma from occurring in the home. It's just such powerful work. And, um, you know, I'm really glad, again, that we're talking about this. So you're handling a lot of cases and this is really intense work. You know, there's trauma happening at the family level, at the community level. You've described both. For you, what's the biggest challenge with this work? The biggest challenge for me is seeing people that look like me remove children from families that look like us. Majority of, of the CPS workers, ACS workers that, that we come across with, they look like me. They're folks of color. And going into, into families' homes, right, in the Bronx, that all look like me. And they're deciding right then and there to separate families, separate children from families that look like me. It, it hurts me. It pains me because I know the, the aftermath effects. I know the, the trauma that happens. It's a, it's a permanent trauma. And it's really hard to come back from that. Right. Like we're conditioned to believing that families of color cannot parent children. And unfortunately, the press is all over that. Right. Unfortunately, the press speaks about what's going on in the South Bronx. NYPD is all the way. It's in the South Bronx. And there's a lot of press and a lot of media to talk about what's happening when the when NYPD is involved. But there isn't a lot of press to talk about what happens when children of color are removed from their homes. That and, and the reasons why, right? Like we don't see that happening in the press. Yeah. And this police presence, ACS presence, state presence does not exist in white neighborhoods or no. middle-class neighborhoods. No, it, it does not. And I, 
we represent close to at least 1,500 parents, 1,500 families a year on, on these cases. How do you, um, I mean, have you had any experiences talking with folks that work for ACS about this exact issue that you just shared, this, this challenge for you? Have you seen any breakthroughs there? You know, any acknowledgement that they're part of, that they're complicit in this oppressive system? Absolutely. There, we have had multiple conversations with ACS. Our managers have had multiple conversations with ACS on a, on a much higher level. There has been also a, a new law that just passed, which we are very grateful for this law and just want to give you a little kind of like a little background. So when families, when a parent is being investigated for child abuse or neglect, there's a 60-day investigation, right? And what that 60-day investigation looks like is that the worker will go into the home, they will check all the cabinets or the cubbies or the beds in the home, make sure that there's food in the home. Um, they will also take off the children's clothes to, to look for any marks or bruises. And they will do that for 60 days. They will come in at whatever time in the, in, during the day. It can be at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It could be at 2 o'clock in the morning. And they'll wake up the kids, put a flashlight on their face, right? And say, you need to get up. I need to look at your body. Wow. After those 60 days, if a, the ACS worker, the child protective workers believe that the allegations, right? Like, let's say, for example, the parent is being accused of not supervising the child, right? At the end of that investigation, if ACS believes that that allegation is correct and it's true, then that case is indicated meaning that the, that parent has um, an indicated case on their record until their youngest child turns 28 years old, meaning that that parent cannot work with children, right? Cannot become a school social worker, um, cannot work in a daycare center, cannot work with children until their youngest child turns 28 years old. There's a new law that just passed that says is that instead of of it being up to 28 years is now going to be eight years. And that stems from a lot of advocacy from our office. We personally went to Albany and, and lobbied for that to be changed. And, and it happened. And we will continue to push for more comprehensive reform. Yeah, that's a huge victory. And it's like they're getting sentenced to these employment barriers, right? It's like getting sentenced when you, it's just unbelievable. I didn't even, I didn't know about that. I didn't know about that at all. Yes, that's, that happens in New York City every day. So, you know, kind of shifting, uh, kind of shifting topics here. You know, how did you, how did you get into this work? How did you get into social work and, and, and the work you're doing? Well, it's a little funny because I didn't know that this work existed. I, I didn't know that social workers could work with lawyers, right? Like that's, that's very innovative, very creative. And so after college, I interned um, with a private attorney because I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I soon learned that I did not want to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, um, I love my lawyer friends and I have lots of respect for them, but I, I do want a life after work. I don't want to have to read uh, thousands and thousands of pages right after eight hour work. And so during my internship with him, he, he told me, you know, you can be getting paid for this. And he walks me over to what I now know to be the Legal Aid Society. Um, and he helped me with my resume. He helped me with my cover letter. And two weeks later, I got hired as a paralegal. 
Um, so at, at the Legal Aid Society, there's, they also have a branch called the Juvenile Rights Practice, and they represent children that are in foster care and, and youth that have any delinquency cases, right? Any like delinquency court matters. And so I was able to represent children on both sides, kids in foster care and also kids in the delinquency matters. And there I learned that there were social workers and paralegals and other folks that work with lawyers in an interdisciplinary role. And I then I remembered also going to the Bronx Defenders as as a high school student because I was part of the MACTRA team and the debate team. And I always said, if I ever come back to the Bronx and work, I want to work at the Bronx Defenders because I really love their their strategies and I really love how zealous they are. And at that time, I didn't know that the Bronx Defenders had any social workers. Um, so while I was at the Legal Aid Society, I went to grad school. So I worked full time. I went to school full time, graduated, got my master's and applied to work at, in the Bronx. And I really wanted to work with parents of these children that of kids that are being removed from them, right? Because while I was at legal aid, um, for instance, I had this one client who he was, I believe, in his late teen years, I want to say 17, 18 years old. And I worked at legal aid, there's a specialized program or specialized department that works with kids who are aging out of foster care. So I worked with, with older teens that were already what New York City calls free for adoption, um, meaning that they, the parents' rights have been terminated or also meaning that they decided to live independently from their parents. So this youth in particular, he was freed for adoption and he lived on his own. He didn't have any parents. He didn't know where his relatives were. He had no idea who his kinships were, right? Like he didn't know he had an uncle, a sister, nothing. And he asked me one day, Miss, can you connect me with my mom? Mm. And at that time, I didn't know how to connect him with his mother because the documents that we get for children that are already free for adoption, that information is not shared. So I had no way of connecting this child to his family. And I firmly believe that had I had any information, right? I, I did go to ACS and say, hey, we need the names and numbers of anybody for this child. And they didn't have that information either. Had, I, had that child been connected to somebody in his family, he would have not had any, any conversations with any NYPD officers, right? Like he would not had any experience in the criminal justice system. He probably wouldn't even be in foster care. And so then I decided, you know what, I want to work with parents. I want to work with parents who, who have these allegations against them. And I really want to dig, right? Like what's underneath? What is causing, what is causing this? Why has this happened? And try to prevent it, right? And work and, and intervene at the crust, right? To prevent any, anything from, from happening to families, but particularly families of color, because I'm, I'm a Latina myself. And it's very hurtful and it's very painful to see families of color being separated by other child protective agency workers who are also of color, right? And then not having the ability to reconnect with your family. Uh, it's a huge problem for me and it's very painful. How do you deal with that pain? So I believe in God <laughs> and I, I have a strong faith. Um, it keeps me solace. It keeps me sane. Um, I have my prayer group. I have my folks that I pray with. I go to church very often. 
and it keeps me grounded, right? Like, I don't know where I would be had I not have a strong faith because this, this career can, can take you to many places. Um, and so it's very important to, to come back and ground yourself. Self-care is important too. I, I love going to the beach, right? And so we, I travel. <laughs> um, and, you know, when, when I'm done with work, I'm done with work. Um, and when I'm at work, then I'm out at work. So self-care is, is key in this work. And having a support system is also key in this work as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I'm glad that you just jumped right out there and and shared your faith and and didn't hold back. You know, I think that's an area where, from my experience talking with other social workers and people doing frontlines work, spirituality is really important, but sometimes we we don't talk about it, you know? Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you something else, you know, so there are a lot of um, students, more and more students and social work educators who listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the students are going to go work in the equivalent of, um, you know, some form of child protective services or some sort of like the child welfare system, right? Like in different states, it's called different things. Right. What do you want to say to folks who are considering that? I just thought like maybe you've got a message. I mean, you've already said a message for sure, but <laughs> very specifically you know, what do you want to share to people who are that like, that's what they want to do. Maybe they grew up in that system and they think it's going to, and you know, and sometimes there is, obviously there are kids in that system and they need help, right? So people want to go in that system, but it's easy to then become part of that very system and not have any critique of it. Right. That, that's a good one. You know, I thought about that long and hard because it's something that, that we deal with on a daily basis. I would say Get your master's in social work. I would say learn about childhood development, adolescent development. Learn about attachment, right? Like learn all these theories that we learn in grad school and be compassionate and be merciful with families and learn about families. Don't just go into somebody's home, make an assumption and execute on that assumption, right? Like don't go in there with your biases. We need to check our biases, right? Like we need to go in there and not, and not think that this is a family that we know for a hundred years. It is not a family that we know for a hundred years. We just met them for five, we have five minutes, right? So I would say ask lots of questions and, and also build a rapport, build a relationship with the families that you're working with because they need it, right? ACS is not in, in families' homes just because, something happened. So be, be compassionate and learn about them, want to help them, right? Don't, don't go in there with attitudes. I have lots of clients who tell me that the workers that went in there were cursing at them or were like screaming at them and just were very rude. Don't do that. Be respectful and help and not just make a decision solely based out of fear, right? Like really make a decision based on the evidence, based on the conversations you have with clients, based on everything that, that the clients are telling you or, or the things that, but don't, don't base it out of fear. Don't base it out of your own emotions. This, this career can also be very emotionally driven. And a lot of mistakes happen when you make decisions based on emotions. So that's what I would say. I think that's really good. 
I think that's a really powerful message. And, you know, the whole interview has been powerful. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your experience. And also want to thank you for doing the work in the community. You know, you're out there doing really difficult work and helping people who really need it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Thank you.